Good morning, everybody. Looking forward to starting a new series in Mark's Gospel, and I'd encourage you to have Mark chapter 1 out in front of you. Uh, we'll be looking at those verses that Coyote read for us earlier on in the service. I wonder, though, if this week you heard the story of Dr. Joanna Penberthy. Or Penberthy, I'm not certain how you pronounce her name. Now, just before I recount what happened to Dr. Joanna Penberthy, I just want to say, I'm not making a comment on her ministry. I don't know how she works. I don't know uh, any of her doctrines. I don't know anything about uh, the way she works in the church. I also don't intend this to be a political comment. There are political statements that I'm going to say, but I'm not making any comment about whether they're right or wrong. But what happened to Dr. Joanna Penberthy is um, she works as the bishop down in St. David's, right down in the... St. David's is the smallest city in the UK. It's right down in the bottom corner of South Wales, right on the edge of the Pembrokeshire coast. Very beautiful little, well, city. It's more like a village, really, if you ever go there. It's tiny. There's just this huge cathedral and an ice cream shop and a few houses, and that's it, really, and uh, close to the beach. Anyway, Dr. Joanna Pemberthy works down there, and in her role as the bishop, her job is to be a spiritual shepherd to the people who live in that area. Uh, her role is to be a witness and an advo- uh, advocate for Christ in the world. She's to be a Christ-like example to others, and she's supposed to be nurturing and developing the faith of her parishioners. She's come under fire this week for using her Twitter account to tell her followers, never, never, never trust a Tory. Okay. Again, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just recounting what's happened. Never, never, never trust a Tory. And interestingly, it's not actually her political views that have got her in trouble. She's well known for having strong political views. The reason she's got in trouble is because she has used her platform as a minister in the church in order to share this very provocative and divisive rhetoric that refers to the the political sphere. It's the sort of idea which would even pit her own parishioners against one another. It would tend to divide the church rather than helping to promote unity within the church. And so one commentator wrote, the poor people of South Wales are stuck with frothing political hackery in the place of spiritual enrichment. Now, by her own admission, it was an unwise and unhelpful thing to share, especially in such a public and provocative way. And I'm sure she counts it as a disappointment when she considers the damage it will have done to her reputation and subsequently to her ministry. But why am I recounting this story as we begin looking at Mark's Gospel? The reason is, I don't want us to be so quick to mock her in a condemnatory way. It'd be easy to sit here in our pews and and laugh at her for this very obvious and blatant mistake that she's made. But the reason I bring it up is because I think, actually... It's very easy for many of us to fall into the exact same trap that she has. That is the trap of putting something or someone other than Christ at the centre of the gospel that we proclaim. That's what she's fallen for. Uh, She's fallen for the trap of saying, the thing that these people of South Wales need is a Labour government. This is their greatest hope. And I'm going to replace Christ with a political statement. And yet it's so easy for us to do the same. 
whether in the message that we share with others, replace the good news of Christ with the good news about vaccines, about fellowship, about friendship, about marriage, any other thing that we might replace Christ with. Mark's Gospel was one of the very first New Testament books to be written. Not the first, Paul wrote some letters to the churches before, but almost certainly Mark's Gospel was the first Gospel. And it was written uh, not in a specific response to a a specific church situation, uh, but it was written for the general use of believers, people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, in that way, that Mark's Gospel can be taken as a kind of summary of the Christian faith. Mark is setting down in text, this is what we believe. This is what Christianity is all about. Now I wonder, if you had to do the same job today, what might you include in your little document? What is Christianity about? What are you believing? What is the church preaching? You might write down ideas about the structure of the church, how the church operates. Uh, You might write some essays on theological points. Uh, You might uh, take time uh, linking back into the Old Testament and pointing forward into the New and and showing how it all fits together. But what Mark does, very simply and plainly, is he tells us about Jesus. The Gospel is all about Jesus. He doesn't list rules or instructions about Christian living. He tells us, chapter 1, verse 1, The beginning of the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And in fact, in in the Greek, the word about is not even needed. And so really what Mark has written is the beginning of the Jesus gospel. This is the Jesus gospel. And that is what I'm going to tell you about. The thing I want us to take away from our opening look at Mark's gospel is that whatever good news Christianity has to offer, it must always be centred on the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever good news Christianity has to offer, it must always be centred on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, as Mark introduces this good news and begins to write his gospel, he brings in three voices that I want us to listen to this morning. The first voice that Mark refers us to is the voice of the prophets. Verse 2, he uh, immediately jumps back into the prophets. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Actually, he quotes more than just Isaiah in this little section, uh, but he refers to Isaiah. And I think that's because Isaiah was such an influential prophet in preparing the people for what the Messiah would come to do. You might remember, as we were going through Isaiah in previous weeks, uh, some of the wonderful things that Isaiah describes about what God would do to save Israel. Uh, God, through Isaiah, describes wonders of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He describes the coming strength of Zion. He describes freedom from the captives. He describes uh, the subservience of the kings of the nations. Uh, Isaiah describes how the enemies will be defeated. He describes the Lord marching out like a mighty warrior. He describes material blessing to the people of Israel. You might remember him uh, talking about, come buy uh, wine and milk without cost. Come and eat the richest of fare. Isaiah paints a wonderful picture of salvation. uh, A picture full of rejoicing and gladness and goodness. And it had been all too easy for the Jews of the day to pick up those prophecies of Isaiah in a very simplistic manner ignoring many of the spiritual realities that they were referring to. And as a result, 
The central hope for many people in Israel at the time that Mark was writing was the hope of some kind of military force that would secure political freedom and influence for the nation. They'd taken the promises that are related to salvation and they'd made them central. Imagine, for example, if earlier this week we had Felix and Jen getting married here in uh, the building. And if one of you had asked, Felix, what is it that you're so looking forward to about Monday? And he replied with things like, well, what I'm really looking forward to is we're, we're going to be able to go on a holiday for a few days together. Re- really looking forward to a few days away, you know. Or I'm really looking forward to uh, the, the wonderful food that we've got. We're going to have a big barbecue together. I love barbecues. They're just fantastic, you know. If he'd responded in such a way, you'd, you'd say, surely, Felix, you've missed the point. Those things might be good and they might be related to the wedding, but certainly the, the, the center of your joy is not those things that make the day nice. The center of your joy is the bride, Jen. And in a similar way, the people of Israel had taken the promises that are related to salvation and they'd made them central. And they'd forgotten really what salvation was all about. So what Mark does, he doesn't dismiss the words of Isaiah He doesn't push them aside, but he says, look again. Look again at what Isaiah was telling you. Look at what he was really promising. Where was he seeking to focus our attention? Not on the political freedom or the victories to come. Actually, it was all about the person who would secure them for us. Prepare the way for the Lord. You see, Isaiah's prophecies were all about the servant, who would come in the name of the Lord, who would be anointed by the Spirit. And yes, he would accomplish remarkable things. But Isaiah's message is prepare the way for him. He is coming. And that is the good news. The good news is not the result of salvation. The good news is the one who brings salvation. Now, it's all too easy to sit here in the 21st century and mock the nationalistic zeal of those Jews in the 1st century who were so blinded by the glory that was coming to them that they missed the one who would bring salvation. In fact, they even rejected him in the end. But it's the same mistake that still happens today. It's the same mistake that Dr. Pemberthy was making when she more aggressively promotes a political party as the greatest hope rather than holding up Jesus Christ as the only hope. And it's the same mistake that we can make when we assume, for example that God's highest plan for my life is anything other than Jesus Christ. Or that God's highest plan for my life can be, can be achieved without Jesus Christ as a part of it. You see, the cry of the prophets, Mark is showing us, has never been, prepare for long and happy marriages. Prepare for a sudden expansion of your business. The prophets have never been telling us, prepare for God to fill up your ISA or for academic success. The cry of the prophets has never even been, prepare for ministry fruitfulness. The cry of the prophets has never been, prepare for the world to respond favorably to the message you're going to try and preach to them. The cry of the prophets has always been, prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus Christ is the good news. The promised salvation of God is found in a person, and Mark wants to make it clear in his gospel that that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the prophets, Mark is saying. 
But then there's another voice he brings us to. Um, another obvious reason Mark has used the, the voice of the prophets is to set the context for the work of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the second voice then that John that Mark brings into his account. John comes into the desert region and John begins preaching to the people. And for many who came to hear John, I would suggest that they found it to be quite a comfortable sermon to listen to. Verse 4, so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think that would be a comfortable thing to listen to. And here's why I say that. It is, in one sense, easy to preach a popular message. And here is a message that is quite easy to make popular. The message is, you're not good enough. That message is popular because when people hear it, they instantly relate to it. They can recognize, yes, I'm not good enough. And so if you take, for example, a word from Scripture that speaks about our generosity or the need for our prayers or the requirement for holiness or the demands upon a Christian for uh, things like fasting and, uh, and generosity towards others and unity in the church, it'd be easy to pick a verse like that and preach it and make people feel guilty about their own inadequacies. And when you preach such a message, you inherently offer a sense of hope at the same time. Because people see, here is the problem. I am prayerless. If that is the problem, surely the answer is simple. I ought to then just go and pray. And so you offer people a message which at one sense resonates with their own sense of guilt that they feel. And yet on the other hand is immediately offering them some way out of it, some some hope. There's the problem, my prayerlessness. The answer must be to pray more. And here's John preaching repentance. You've sinned. And the people recognize their own guilt. And John is also preaching a way out. Here is baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And for many, it would have been a very comfortable thing to hear because they would have been able to spend the day walking out into the desert, confessing their sins, shedding their tears, and then walking home feeling as if the whole weight had been removed from their shoulders and carry on living their lives as they always ever had done. For many, they weren't really listening to John's message. Because if that's what you understand John's message to have been, you've really misunderstood what John was all about. John wasn't just about offering a system of forgiveness through religious performance. John was offering a different type of message altogether. Look at verse 7 to see what John was really speaking about. This was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His message was not a message of religious ritual in exchange for spiritual cleansing. John's message was, there's someone coming. There is someone coming after me. He is worthy. I am not worthy. Get ready for him. That was John's message. You know, there are people today, perhaps even in the church, who are experts at hearing the preaching but never really get hold of the message. As though you, you go out and hear the preaching of John, repent and be baptised, 
But you never really get hold of his message. Look to Jesus. He's the one you ought to bow down to. There are many people who see Christianity as just a system of repentance and forgiveness, but have very little or nothing even of Christ himself. They've pushed him from the centre, even of their own confession. And so any act of confession is really just a focus upon themselves and their own performance and their own sense of guilt. Confession can be performed without any sense of faith or trust in Christ. It can be performed even with tears and with sorrow, but sorrow for the effects and the damage that your own sin has done, rather than sorrow at the sin that you've committed against your God and Saviour. Now, is this just a technicality that I'm trying to weave into to make repentance ever more complicated and more difficult to achieve? But I would say no, not at all. I would say not at all. The, the difference is the difference between good news and bad news. Without Christ, without Jesus at the centre, any method of confession or self-assessment or religious ritual is only ever going to be bad news. Because it cannot and will not change you. And so in another one of the Gospels, you hear John condemning people who are all too happy to wander out into the desert to have this baptism that he is offering, but then go on living unchanged lives. And he condemns them. You're hypocrites. You're a brood of vipers. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Show that this repentance is not just a, a show of sorrow in the moment, but show that it's making an impact. But you can't do it in your own strength. That's why you're in the situation you're in. But when you confess your sins to Jesus Christ, and when you put your trust in him, what does he offer? John says, well, I'm baptizing you with water. But here's one going to come who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going he's to really make the change in you. He is good news. When you come to Jesus, when you see him with the same eyes as John himself has, when you see Jesus as the one more powerful than you are, more able to effect change in your life, more worthy, more pure, then you realise that the good news is not a system of rituals and confessions in order to appease God. The good news is a person. The good news is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is him who offers forgiveness for our sins. He is the one who deals with our guilt. We've had the voice of the prophets, we've had the voice of John the Baptist, and then there's a third voice that Mark brings into the picture, the voice of the Father. One of Mark's stated aims, right in that very first sentence, chapter 1, verse 1, is to show you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we will see that throughout uh, the Gospel as we go through the series. In fact, Mark's Gospel ends with the Roman centurion seeing Christ die upon the cross and saying, surely... Surely this man was the Son of God. He, the Roman centurion, who just has a glimpse of Jesus in a moment, sees a truth more profound than all of the Jews who spent weeks and months listening to the teaching of Jesus. And in Mark's craft as a writer, he, be he both ends his gospel with that announcement, and he begins his gospel with that announcement. Chapter 1, verse 1, and then also uh, verse 11. The voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, what I want to suggest is that that voice in verse 11 is doing more than simply 
affirming the identity of one particular individual. Mark, you see, had learnt to understand a broader significance of why that voice of God, particularly called Jesus the Son at this point in time. And Mark uses his writing to give hints to to what that significance is. Throughout the narrative uh, of verse 1 to 15 that we read, you might have noticed a peculiar reference to the desert coming up quite frequently, or the wilderness, depending on what sort of translation you've got. So you see this in verse 3, you get the voice in the desert. In verse 4, you get John coming, baptizing in the desert. Uh, In verse 12, again, the Spirit sends Jesus out into the desert. And then in verse 13, it's repeated again, really unnecessarily, and he was in the desert for 40 days. Mark wants you to realize that all this that's happening is happening in the desert. And that is purposeful, because in the Old Testament scriptures, the desert or the wilderness is a hugely significant place. Especially the desert, after having been related to passing through the waters. Here, the waters of baptism, you might remember in the Old Testament, the waters of the Red Sea. When God called Israel as a nation to himself, he brought them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into the wilderness. And there at the foot of Mount Sinai, God calls Israel to consecrate themselves, so that the voice can come from heaven and secure the covenant with them. And the people in Exodus say, yes, it will be as you say it, God. We will do everything that you command us. And that's exactly what is going on in verse 5, is it not? The people of all Judea and all Jerusalem have gone out into the wilderness. They've confessed their sins and they're saying, we will do everything that you command. We'll go through these waters of baptism. We will confess our sin. And then just verse 6 moves on. In the narrative, nothing really results of the confession that Israel are making out there in the wilderness. You know, it was the same in the Old Testament. Hosea recounts God's assessment of the people's response to him at Sinai. Hosea records God's perception. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel the further they went from me. I called my son out of Israel. I called them towards me at Sinai. And they said they would be be in obedience to me. Yet the more I called them, the further they went from me. Here again, in Mark's Gospel, is Israel simply going through the motions. And we know that especially not just from these verses, but from what will follow in Mark's Gospel. But when Jesus comes, the response is entirely different. Instead of seeing empty religion and blatant hypocrisy, God sees the true submission of his own eternal son. And so when Jesus is baptized in obedience to the command of God, Jesus comes up out the water and the voice from heaven says this, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Unlike that son Israel who promised his obedience and yet turned away, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so Mark offers a challenge to the Jew reading his gospel. The true Israel is not your nation. The true Israel is this man, Jesus Christ. And so to be part of the people of God is not to belong to your ethnic group. To be part of the true people of God is to belong to this man, 
Jesus Christ. The good news that Mark is bringing is not news of some kind of spiritual reformation or religious change. The good news is Jesus Christ. He is the true Israel. And he is the opportunity to enter into the love of God. Now, how does that relate to our situation today? Well, today, even amongst Christians, there is a tendency to depend upon our acceptance with God through tradition or history or doctrine. There is a tendency to assume that we're okay with God because we come to the right sort of church, because we know the right doctrines, we can explain the right sort of truths, because we read the right version of the Bible, because we listen to the right preachers. But listen to the voice of the Father here. The good news is not Hollywell Church. The good news is not Martin Luther and the Reformation that followed him. The good news is not evangelical truth. The good news is not the reformed doctrines. These things in and of themselves are not the gospel, although they might go a long way to explaining the gospel. And if your assurance before God depends upon you knowing those things or you being part of those groups, your assurance is false and misplaced. The good news is a person. The good news is Jesus Christ. And you are accepted by God, not on the basis of what you know or what you're able to describe, but you're accepted by by God because of your relation to him, the Lord Jesus. He is the dear son with whom God is well pleased. It is through him that we enter into the pleasure of the Father. And he ought to be not only the centre of our assurance, also the basis of our hope and the key point of the message that we proclaim to the world. Three voices that Mark gives us in his introduction. The voice of the prophets, the voice of John, the voice of the Father. And then Mark wraps up his introduction by giving us the very first words of Jesus. The very first words of many that will come in Mark's account. And these words kind of close off the introduction a little and allow Jesus now to enter as centre stage in all that Mark is going to recount. And what Mark wants us to see is that it's not enough just to know about Jesus, but he wants us to respond to Jesus. And the voice of Jesus shows us how to respond. Verse 15, the time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Mark distills the whole message of Jesus into one little phrase. He distills the whole response that he aims to secure from you throughout his whole gospel into this one sentence. This is what Mark wants from his readers. Repent and believe the good news. Repent, not just in the sense of uh, looking inwardly at your own sin and feeling sorrowful for the, the grief and the harm that is caused in your own life. Not just uh, repenting to turn from one sin to another sin, but repent, giving up all that sin and turning to another. Turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sins to him and trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and believe. Believe in Christ alone. Believe that he is both the source of your salvation and the goal of your salvation. 
He is the one who can bring you forgiveness for your sins, and he is the one who can change you to be more like him. Mark's Gospel, over the next few weeks, we will see, is all about Jesus. Jesus is the good news that God has given us. And week after week, we're going to see what Mark shows us about who Jesus is and about how we ought to respond to him. May we never put anyone or anything other than Christ at the centre of the gospel in which we trust or which we proclaim.